Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kumar. I'm Rahul Damania, a third-year PQ fellow. And I'm Kate Phelps, a second-year PQ fellow. And we're all coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. I'm joining Pradeep and Rahul today. Welcome to our episode where we'll be discussing gastrointestinal bleeding. Let's start with the case. A four-year-old, previously healthy male presents to the emergency room after a large, bloody stool at home. He notably had a dark emesis yesterday and an episode of blood-tinged emesis immediately following. In triage, he's altered and unable to answer questions coherently. His initial vital signs are a temperature of 36.1 degrees Celsius, a respiratory rate of 24, a heart rate of 146, and a blood pressure of 110 over 54. His point-of-care labs show a hemoglobin of 5.1 with a hematocrit of 15. The rest of his point-of-care venous blood gas is reassuring against respiratory disease, and he's in no respiratory distress. Further labs are sent, and the massive transfusion protocol is initiated before transfer to the PICU. Before arrival in the PICU, he receives two aliquots of red blood cells, one aliquot of FFP, and one aliquot of platelets. Additional labs are sent from the PICU post-transfusion. His post-transfusion hemoglobin is 8.8. Other labs are notable for normal MCV, Elevated total bilirubin to 4.1 with a direct component of 3.4 and elevated AST and ALT to 309 and 495, respectively. To summarize key elements from this case, this patient has an undifferentiated gastrointestinal bleed with both hematemesis and hematochesia. He has symptomatic anemia as evidenced by tachycardia and his vital signs, as well as altered mental status. He is initially stabilized via transfusion of several blood products and liver function labs are shown to be very abnormal. All of this we will get to a little bit later on in this episode. Let's go into the important parts of the history and physical. Kate, can you tell us what some key history items in these patients are and what are some areas to make sure to touch on when a patient presents with a GI bleed? Yeah, perfect. First, in our patient, some important elements are his rather acute onset. His parents mentioned he's had one day of bleeding symptoms, first with emesis yesterday, with components of old, partially digested blood, as well as some fresh blood. Secondly, he's had a frankly bloody stool at home today. Given his clinical instability, history taking was probably limited at first, so it's important to ask follow-up questions and really dig into the case after stabilization. I like to put my questions for gastrointestinal bleeding into buckets based on the questions I need to answer. I need to answer, is this active bleeding or old blood? Is this slow, insidious bleeding or fast, life-threatening bleeding? Is this an upper GI bleed or a lower GI bleed? Bright red blood in emesis tells us that bleeding is active, whereas coffee ground or dark emesis tells us that while recent, the blood has been partially digested in the stomach and bleeding may not be ongoing. Similarly, melana, dark tarry stool, tells us blood has come through the colon. While coffee ground emesis and melana don't rule out an active bleed, they do tell us bleeding may be slower, as large volume active bleeding is irritating to the stomach and gastrointestinal tracts and moves through the system quickly. Next question I want to answer is, what is the cause of this bleeding? Easy bruising, petechiae, and mucosal bleeding may point to a coagulation disorder. Abdominal cramping, frequent stooling, and weight loss may point to inflammatory bowel disease. Past medical history, family history, and thorough review of systems are key here. Kate, that was a great overview of the history component. Let's just go into a little bit more depth 
between upper GI versus lower GI bleeding. First, a definition. Upper GI bleeding is bleeding that occurs above the ligament of trite. Now, this is a fancy proper noun, but essentially it is the ligamentous tissue that supports the end of the duodenum and the beginning of the jejunum right at that duodeno-jejunal junction. While not 100% specific, some symptoms that point to an upper GI bleeding are hematemesis, coffee ground or dark emesis, and melana. Symptoms that lend themselves to the diagnosis of a lower GI bleed are hematochesia, which is bright red blood in the stool, and melana, which may represent a bleed more proximal to the ligament of trites. However, with a brisk, heavy upper GI bleed, say from the duodenum, patients can also have hematochesia. So let's just go ahead and summarize what we've talked about so far. When we think about GI bleeding, first stratify your patient into slow versus fast bleeding. Identify whether it is upper or lower GI bleeding, and then dive deeper into a more focused history as well as an underlying cause. And this is all after your patient is going to be stabilized. So relatively little data exists about the prevalence of GI bleeds in the pediatric ICU. One study reported that approximately 10% of children admitted to the PICU have upper GI bleeding, with only 20% of those with an upper GI bleed having a clinically relevant bleeding episode. Clinically relevant meaning requiring blood transfusion or for hypotension or a massive hemoglobin drop or a multi-organ failure or even that. Incidence of lower GI bleeding is even less well characterized in the PICU in the current literature. So given our patient symptoms, I'm most concerned for an upper GI bleed given the bloody emesis. But I'm also concerned that it's a significant bleed since it's leading to hematochesia or bright red blood indicating fast transit through the lower GI system. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, Kate. Radeep, in the literature, we see they mention that NG saline lavage can be used diagnostically to help confirm if bleeding is occurring in the upper GI tract versus a pulmonary source. Actually, further in these studies, NG lavage has been advocated as a therapeutic practice. However, now globally, if we interpret the literature, this recommendation may be outdated as we push for more timely endoscopy in clinical practice. In fact, recent studies have shown that ice water lavage is actually not recommended. And this older practice does not slow bleeding and may actually induce iatrogenic hypothermia, particularly in infants and small children. Okay, so let's back up for a second and let's talk about red flag symptoms. ABC should always come first for every patient who arrives anywhere in the hospital. In this patient, concerning symptoms in this scenario are his tachycardia and his altered mental status. These symptoms tell us that his anemia is symptomatic and more likely acute. Hypotension and tachycardia indicate that bleeding is significant to cause hypovolemia. Altered mental status indicates that the brain is hypoxic, in this case due to the hypovolemia. Other red flag symptoms in GI bleeding include orthostatic changes, delayed capillary refill, and other signs of poor perfusion. Current jelly stools, which may indicate bowel ischemia, and of course anything that points to a large volume of blood in the emesis or stool. For example, parents saying, the whole toilet bowl was red. These may precede and often precede hypotension. Rahul will fill us in later about how to treat patients with red flag symptoms. Absolutely. The identification of hypovolemic shock is essential in GI bleeding. 
Notice these subtle data trends when you're at the bedside and optimize auction delivery. I would highly encourage you all to review and check out our prior episode entitled Oxygen Content and Delivery. It's a great integration to our discussion today. So to switch gears, Kate, can you tell us about your approach to a differential diagnosis in patients without GI bleeding? Differential will be different for upper versus lower GI bleeds, and age will also be super relevant for the differential. The differential for clinically relevant GI bleeding in an infant includes hemorrhagic disease of the newborn in those who do not receive vitamin K at birth, necrotizing enterocolitis, Hirschsprung's enterocolitis, which interestingly can even occur after repair, and volvulus. For children greater than one year, the differential includes esophageal varices, gastric or duodenal ulcers, volvulus, intussusception, Meckel's diverticulum, Mallory-Weiss tears, IgA vasculitis, hemolytic uremic syndrome, and several other infectious etiologies. Adolescents and young adults have a similar differential, but now we begin to think about more inflammatory bowel disease and over-NSAID use in the adolescent population. Of course, there's still overlap between school-age children and adolescents, and many of the differential items on the school-age kids list is also on the adolescent list. In the oncology population, we also have to consider graft-versus-host disease and tiflitis. So really, Kate, the differential is quite broad. And let's talk about initial and ongoing workup to narrow our differential. This is going to really focus on diagnostics. So when we think about labs, initial labs should include a complete blood count or CBC, a CMP with a fractionated blood ribbon, coagulation studies, and perhaps most importantly, a type and screen. You are going to need to transfuse these children. Initial imaging might include a two-view abdominal x-ray to evaluate for obstruction or perforation, and ultrasound can help us rule out intussusception, common things being common. Later imaging might include CT with angiography or even MRI. And I do want to advocate for early consultation of GI, nutrition, as well as pediatric surgery. Now, remember, when it comes to liver function tests, alkaline phosphatase and GGT give us info about the biliary ducts, and AST and ALT tell us about hepatocellular function. Albumin and PTINR give us info about hepatic synthetic function. It's important to trend these data points, and it's also important for us to understand what these data points mean if they come back abnormal or normal. So guys, how do we treat GI bleeding? Well, Pradeep, that's a great question. And as Kate alluded to earlier, if any red flag symptoms are present, we need to think about resuscitation and stabilization. Now, initial stabilization for patients should include sound ICU care, airway, breathing, and circulation. For serious upper GI bleeds, intubation should be considered for repeated bloody emesis to control the airway and, most importantly, prevent aspiration. Hypotension can be initially managed with judicious fluid resuscitation to temporize, but should be followed by blood products as soon as possible. And remember, we needed to get that type and screen. Most hospital centers have a massive transfusion protocol. So consider this in hemorrhage states before you have signs of end organ hypoperfusion. All right, Kate, can you touch on additional specific treatment for ongoing bleeding? Yeah, so we really have two avenues for intervention. We have medical and surgical or procedural. Medical treatment can be tailored to the etiology, but can include an IV proton pump inhibitor or PPI as first line during workup, followed by an octreotide infusion. 
Rahul, can you tell us about octreotide before I continue? I would love to. Octreotide is a long-acting somatostatin analog, and it works by reducing splanchnic blood flow and inhibits gastric acid secretion. Both are two fundamental physiologic and pharmacological principles when we're talking about acute GI hemorrhage. Now, dosing is an initial bolus of one microgram per kilo, followed by a continuous infusion that goes up to a max of 10 micrograms per kilo per hour. And this can be uh, titrated as bleeding worsens, improves, resolves, etc. Now, one of the side effects that we have to watch out for is hyperglycemia. And it makes sense because as octreotide is a somatostatin analog, it will inhibit the effects of insulin and thus lead to hyperglycemia. So an additional medication sometimes used in GI bleeding is vasopressin, though octreotide has been shown to be as efficacious and does not carry the same daunting side effect profile as vasopressin. Most management strategies have shifted to using octreotide over vasopressin. If intermittent PPI dosing plus octreotide doesn't control bleeding, a continuous infusion of a PPI could be considered, though no data has shown this to be superior to intermittent dosing. Now let's talk about surgical or procedural intervention. Before we go there, let's go ahead and just quickly summarize the medical therapies. PPI, octreotide, and in some cases, vasopressin. So from a surgical slash procedural standpoint, we are talking about upper endoscopy or colonoscopy, which can both be diagnostic and therapeutic. Endoscopy should ideally occur after hemodynamic stabilization, but mostly within the first 12 hours of admission for any variceal bleeding and within 24 hours of admission for non-variceal bleeding in case of upper GI uh, bleeding. Endoscopic interventions can include adhesive cyanoacrylate applied to bleeding lesion, band ligation applied to the varices, injection sclerotherapy, and epinephrine injection, among other things. Interventional radiology may also be able to perform arterial embolization. So what we need here is a team approach between the intensivist, the GI specialist, and the interventional radiologist to kind of stabilize the patient and try to find the source of bleeding and manage the bleeder. I think this is a perfect point to follow up on our case. Initial labs point toward a normocytic anemia with biliary duct obstruction without coagulopathy. During the hospital admission, bleeding stabilized after initial massive transfusion. EGD showed acute clot formation near the ampulla vater in the duodenum. Eventual MRI showed a colidocal cyst with arterial erosion leading to the acute hemorrhage. An angiogram and percutaneous biliary placement were accomplished with IR. Okay, Kate, what a great discussion today. One of the takeaways that I had was treating the underlying cause when it comes to the management of GI hemorrhage. Kate, do you mind summarizing our other takeaways for today? Yeah, Rahul, to that point, clinically relevant GI bleeds are uncommon in the PICU, but the skills to stabilize are crucial in the setting of a life-threatening hemorrhage. Differentials for the GI bleed are broad, but can be narrowed through careful and thorough history taking, physical examination, laboratory data, imaging, and a special mind toward what age the patient is. Endoscopy should occur in a timely fashion in the setting of clinically significant upper GI bleed. And to Pradeep's point, we got to work with our subspecialists. This concludes our episode on GI hemorrhage. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted 
by me, Pradeep Kumar, and my dream co-hosts, Dr. Rahul Dimania and Dr. Kate Phelps. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.